Welcome back. It is Sunday, and we're recording for the week. Um, I mentioned in the podcast that dropped on Tuesday that last week was a bad mental and uh, physical health week for me, but hopefully we're back to recording on a regular schedule. Uh, we're also doing some technology tests. I'll be streaming on Twitch in the not-too-far future. And I'm getting stuff going uh, back again for Twitter. Uh, I got in contact with Thomas again. Uh, so we're going to be getting our chess game going again. We're going to start over. But I should introduce myself. I'm Professor Hamby, and this is my TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. And this is the podcast distributed form of the remote education uh, program from Miskatonic University, offering of graphical literature and society and history 209, a.k.a. the Comics Course. You can get a hold of me on Twitter as Prof Hamby. Comicscourse.org is our website. Comicscourse.captivate.fm is where you can grab episodes, as well as being available on Stitcher uh, and all those other streaming uh, search engines, indexes, that kind of thing. Except except Spotify, because fuck them. So, not that you have feelings. Not that I have feelings. So, I... Okay, we're going to talk about the history of Malibu Comics today. Now, it's February. Uh, this is Black History Month, and it's a good time to talk about African-American creators. We are doing that with Black Panther. I'm talking about a nation under our feet. So if you don't normally think about, you know, Black Panther as something of interest, we are talking about a nation under our feet where... Ta-Nehisi Coates brings in themes about black political power into it. I think it's very well written. I think it's interesting. I'll go ahead and spoil for you. I don't care for it as a Black Panther work, but I do think it's well done. And so if you're skipping the Black Panther podcasts, uh, here in February at least, I recommend checking out the ones related to A Nation Under Our Feet, even if you haven't listened to the others. But for now... We're going to go ahead with the history of Malibu comics. And I did not make notes about dates and other stuff. So this is going to be largely off the top of my head. Unless I can serendipitously... Can I, like this won't be easy for you to do off the top of your head. I, I know nothing. I am a void of intellect. Sure. And nobody can hear me typing, right? I'm sure they can. I'm sure they can. But I am bringing up the Wikipedia article just to have some references for dates. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about related to it, actually, because Malibu, Malibu, Malibu. Malibu has a place in the 90s that's pretty special. And it, it's a comics company that everybody knows the company, but a lot of people don't know what happened behind the scenes, which is interesting because... I mean, Marvel has book after... I mean, a lot of people have so loved Marvel that they wrote books about its history and about specific creators. Uh, DC hasn't had as much written about it, but it certainly has. Uh, Image has, I think, had at least one book published about its history and tons and tons of blogs and other articles. I mean, that was a huge PR event from its beginning. Malib Dark Horse has attracted a fair bit of attention. Um... Malibu kind of showed up, had a huge impact, and then Split. boom, was out. And it's not a story that I think people outside the comics book world know well, but 
it has a fascinating history. And you specifically requested this because you said that when we talk about comic book history, Malibu kept coming up, uh-huh. but without any context about who they were or anything. Yeah. So let's talk about that. In my mind, uh, there are three names you have to know when you talk about Malibu comics. They're Dave Olbrich, Tom Mason, uh, sorry, not Tom Mason, uh, Chris Ulm, and Scott Mitchell Rosenberg. Uh, Tom Mason is also an important name. He was creative director. Uh, but to me, Scott Rosenberg and Dave Olbrich are the two big ones. And then Chris Ulm uh, was also around very much from the very beginning. So I think it was Chris anyway. Tom Mason is considered one of the founders, though. So I guess we, we kind of have to go back and go into Dave Olbrich's life a little bit. Uh, this isn't about Dave Olbrich, though, and he's done a lot outside Malibu Comics. But I think some context does matter. So Dave Olbrich is a guy, I think he was born in Illinois. He grew up in Minnesota. He was kind of a farm kid. He loved comics. And he went off to college to get a communications degree And then while he was in college, ended up working in a comic book store Mm -hmm. and kind of got a foot into the industry and then found out that Fantagraphics, which did a lot of things related to the industry, like the Amazing Heroes um, magazine, needed somebody. So they couldn't pay him much money. So one of the things they did was offered him room and board. The owner of Fantagraphics moved him into his house and fed him as part of his salary. Oh, wow. Right. Now, Fantagraphics has its own fascinating history, but we're not going to go into that today. Uh, But just if we ever do, talking about Olbrich's run at Fantagraphics would be interesting in its own right. I will mention very briefly that while he was there, um, he created the Kirby Awards. Which only lasted a few years, unfortunately. When he left, nobody wanted to continue it. And uh, they were somewhat contentious because Fantagraphics did have a reputation. Its owner had a reputation. And people questioned the impartiality of an award run by a player in the industry. So after Olbrich left Fantagraphics, he decided to restart up the Kirby Awards. But after some conflict with Fantagraphics about who may actually own the name of the Kirby Awards and all that, um, he ended up starting the Eisner Awards. Now, all of this was in response to there being fan awards, but they wanted one given away by professionals in the industry uh, with a dream that one day they'd see these awards covered by the mainstream press, which they are now. I mean, when the Eisner Award people come out, I mean, this covered in mainstream media like People Magazine. I mean, people with no interest in comics have it pushed in front of their face who the Eisner nominees and award winners are. That's a huge change from back then. Huge. And that's not run by uh, Olbrich anymore, by the way. That's run by the same nonprofit that runs San Diego Comic-Con. So it is separated from anybody working in the industry with a bias. Comic-Con's a nonprofit? Yep. Huh, I didn't know that. That we could get into the topic of why things are nonprofits in this country, but that's a different issue. Um, we're not going to get into how nonprofits are often run like profits. <laughs> yeah, da, da, da. 
but uh, but still very legally. There's certainly no implication otherwise here. So Ulbrich ended up working at this distributor. Um, and it was a distributor that he had actually been a rep for when he was at Fanographics. And he apparently got along well with the owner, who was impressed with his professionalism, and hired him on there. And I, I've heard Ulbrich tell this story multiple times. So I'm, if it's not true, it's at least the one that's been made canon. Uh, but the owner of that distributor was a guy named Scott Mitchell Rosenberg. And they were in California, and he asked Dave Ulbrich, so where do you see yourself in five years? And he says, I want to be publishing comics. Now, one of the things that makes Ulbrich different from a lot of other people when we talk about the history of comics, uh, for example, say Image, is that many people go into creating comics because they want to write, they want to draw, they want to be part of the creative process. Ulbrich, that was not his goal. He liked the mechanics of behind the scenes. He liked the machinery of getting the comics out to people, all the stuff that writers and artists don't want to do, which uh, uh, is, by the way, an excellent way to make a career in the a field. If you want to do the work that other people don't want to do, it, it, you can make a career of it. And get paid pretty well, too. Well, in well. some cases. I mean, I don't think Oldbridge is rich, but uh, he's had a good career. And he, by the way, now uh, helps run a company that uh, hooks up comics publishers with talent writers and artists and counts among the companies that employ uh this talent company dc marvel dark horse image all the big ones so there's Ulbrich sitting there i want to publish comics that's what i want to be doing in five years and rosenberg turns to him and says all right do it i'll pay for it so Ulbrich goes around and makes it happen. <coughs> Excuse me a second. Throat is dry. So he employs people. Uh, he, he grabs Tom Mason. He grabs Chris Ohm. I believe Chris Ohm uh, was the one that was a history major who was into gaming and wanted part of it. Uh, and he wasn't technically one of the founders, but he came in very shortly after as a creative director, or, or sorry, editor-in-chief. Uh, Dave Ulbrich was the publisher, Tom Mason was the creative director, and Scott Rosenberg took the title of president because he was supplying all the money. Mm -hmm. So Dave Ulbrich decided to name the company Malibu because he said... Six letters is about right for a name, and we can do creative fun things with the M. It locates us on the West Coast, which we are, which will kind of put us in contrast to Marvel and DC, which at the time were very much East Coast. That's changed now. Um, and it doesn't make any promises. He said he looked back at the history of comics, you know, hot comics and innovative comics and science comics and you know th those sorts of names always tie the companies down to what they're producing mm -hmm. malibu was very generic but after starting up malibu and starting to do stuff one of the things they found out was that scott rosenberg this wasn't his first rodeo oh. in fact it wasn't his only current rodeo what right he actually had 
other comic book companies he was financing scattered around the country. And so eventually, these largely all got merged together, especially the Adventure in Eternity imprints, um, which had been uh, kind of run by these other creative people who didn't really know what they were doing to run a business. And also, Aircell was purchased, uh, which had been an independent company. And I think Adventure had uh, some old intellectual properties from the Golden Age attached to it, if I remember correctly. And... The way things ended up happening, ultimately, <laughs> was that because, you know, Rosenberg had decided to finance these creative people who liked what they were doing, but they didn't really know how to do everything else you need to do to run a comic book company, <coughs> they ended up kind of being imprints of Malibu that uh, the Malibu guys managed. And I think over time, they've said that there might have been as many as seven or eight of these but at any given time, there were only, you know, two or three. Mm-hmm. And they made an effort to focus these imprints on specific styles, but apparently it never coalesced very well. And But along the way, they were publishing creator-owned stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something years later that Image would talk about, and Image would play an important part of Malibu's history. Mm-hmm. But of course, the interesting thing is that... Malibu did not start out to be the representative of the people. The reason that they were publishing creator-owned stuff, and there's a ton of examples that are really important about creator-owned properties that were only either printed in part at other places and then eventually published in a good way. Uh, X-Mutants is an example of this. I think it had three different publishers before it finally landed at Malibu and they were able to bring it all together and get it colored and really push it out because Ulbrich and the others understood cross-marketing and understood how to market things. X-Mutants legendarily had a marketing budget of $400 and it was a huge hit right out the gate for Malibu because marketing and working with distributors and working with retail outlets is one of the things that that Malibu crew knew how to do and do it well. But they didn't one thing but what they didn't have, they had expertise, but they didn't have money. And so they couldn't they were pretty adamant that they should not treat creators like crap. And that meant that if they were going to bring in higher level talent whose stuff they could sell, they needed to really respect the talent. Because they couldn't pay them enough. (laughs) I mean, if they wanted to bring in good talent, you either got to pay them really good money up front or it needs to be creator-owned and they want to do it. They couldn't afford the first one, so they went with the second one. And so they got a reputation for being willing to publish really great people's stuff. And I'll throw out Steve Gerber here. Um, You know, Steve Gerber didn't become one of those names where people bought his stuff just because it was Steve Gerber. But everybody in the industry really respected the guy's talent. Um, And I think he's a really important writer in the history of comics. Um, And so they published uh, some of his work. Now, the company came together in 1986. This was during the period of what some people call the black and white boom. The black and white boom happened when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was published. And then it spawned a bunch of copiers. But people began going, wow, I mean, there are people out there 
with a scanner and Photoshop LE. I don't remember. I don't know how many people remember LE versions of software. What's um, LE? Technically, it stood for limited edition. But here's how things would go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an artist, right? Mm-hmm. And I drew this comic and I want to make a digital comic out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, digital pens and stuff were almost unknown. Mm-hmm. But I can buy a scanner. And the scanner comes with a CD with drivers for Windows and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But they needed to put some sort of graphics program with it. Mm-hmm. Now, Adobe's over there selling Photoshop. And they're like, well, we don't want to give you a huge bulk license for Photoshop, but we'll make a more limited version that we'll call Photoshop LE. And we're willing to sell you that really cheap to put on your CDs because it'll also kind of be marketing for us. People use that. They grow to the point where they need more. They're already comfortable with Photoshop. Maybe they'll buy our full Photoshop. Mm -hmm. So lots of people ended up with scanners with something like Photoshop LE. There were some other things that uh, some of the scanner manufacturers used as well. Options from Corel and whatever. And you could sit down with a computer and a scanner and make your own comic. Mm -hmm. Scan in your line art. Use Photoshop LE to do the inking on it if you want to. I mean, these sorts of things. And then print it off on a laser printer and make your own little ash cans that way. Um, Not laser printers are a crappy way to do it, but you could. And if you were trying to create a proof of concept, you could. And then you could go to a cheap print. Then you could have digital ready files to send to a cheap printer if you want to do something more traditionally published, uh, including traditional ash cans on, you know, say pulp paper or something. So this was the age of the black and white boom. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was suddenly making just ridiculous amounts of money, both as a comic and then exploded into games and cartoons and other media. People even had successes with ripoffs like Radioactive Hamsters. And then more and more black and white comics just came out of the woodwork. For a while, it seemed like every black and white comic was selling a minimum of 20,000 copies an issue and many 40, 50,000. Um, certainly, I know that Malibu was successfully pushing closer to the 40 to 50,000 range on their titles, and they were very good at what they were doing. But even people that didn't know what they were doing were able to sell quite a few. And then that crashed, and it crashed hard. Because, of course, as with every boom, people overinvest in it, and then production just ramps up and up and up until the market's exhausted. And people are burned out on it, which is what happened. And while this was happening, Malibu was looking around and going, what is our game plan for long-term profitability? And they basically said to themselves, we need to make a company where after the boom and comics are selling five to 10,000 a unit for black and white, that we're a company that can do that successfully and live off it. Mm -hmm. And they did. And they continued to produce uh, creator-owned stuff. They also broke out into franchise stuff, uh, merchant things that they buy the rights to do from others. And a couple interesting things happened here. Now, some of them, like, say, the Sherlock Holmes comics, uh, are now more public domain, but uh, there's some legal fight with the estate over whether Sherlock Holmes is truly public domain or not, but that's a whole other issue. But they were licensing it, and... Licensed comics don't make much money. Uh, By the time you do production and then the license right holders take their chunk, there's very little made out of them. 
but they can be useful for cross-marketing, and that was an intentional part of their plan. They also were doing something nobody else did. Now, during the same time period, Dark Horse was republishing some of the first Japanese manga in the U.S. You know, titles like Akira, and I think Oh My Goddess, and some others. Well, they began, license, uh, Malibu began licensing uh, the properties, like Captain Harlock and Robotech, but doing original English comics with them. And Captain Harlock was one of their big successes. They really focused on marketing it and making real, you know, movement in terms of volume with it. And then they began looking forward further. And now we get up to the time of Image. Now, around this time, Image came to them. And, I mean, honestly, they were the publisher of Image at first. Image did not want to say that. Image was very much <coughs> in the headspace of, we're not leaving one totalitarian parent for another. We're not leaving the evil empire of Marvel and DC for the evil empire of Malibu. I don't think anybody can call Malibu an evil empire, but... Okay. Just in case. So even though Malibu was the publisher of record... They, they had a gag order. They could not talk about it. Malibu was not to be referenced anywhere possible because the perception needed to be that Image was doing everything themselves. Now, an Image was made up of a bunch of artists who, frankly, art was more important than story. Um, and they did eventually begin really publishing their own stuff and publishing other people's stuff. They have become the home of some other non-founder creators, uh, like Stan Sakai. Uh, uh, but largely, a bunch of those image guys kind of created their own mini Marvel and DCs, where they then hired other people and then owned the intellectual rights to their works. So they weren't really very revolutionary. And... Dark Horse was already doing some of the owner uh, uh, controlled properties and others had before them. Nothing that Malibu was doing was truly completely original. And I think by the time they got rid of Image, um, they were probably mostly happy about it. But what they weren't happy about was they were making some money off Image. So they needed to look forward to a post-Image Malibu. And what they decided was they had hit a point where they had enough money that they could actually hire good people for art and writing who would be still have generous terms, generous royalties. They'd get a cut of the back end and stuff, but there would be a shared universe that was owned by Malibu. And they decided to call it the Ultraverse. Now, a lot of their early characters were homages to others. For example, they had Prime, who was a... Uh, a reinterpretation of Captain Marvel in some ways. But one of the fascinating things is they started with the universe first. You know, Marvel and DC had both grown up organically, writing different stories and then trying to stitch them together. Mm -hmm. In the case of DC, that was such a mess, they had to have Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Marvel, who always bragged they never had to do that, have had to do that in later years. With some of uh, their... Not... They, they don't like to call them reboots, but they are. Yeah, and they... All the big companies do that a lot now. Yeah. Although not as dramatic. All of them have gone on to softer reboots than Crisis was. Crisis was brutal in-your-face reboot. I think they were tired of everyone making fun of them. 
So they start doing softer ones. <laughs> Maybe. Well, and they don't want to call them reboots because that alienates people. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's why it's all mythology, because right. it's just stories get retold and altered and all that. But the Ultraverse used a lot of homages, but had very original writing. And they had really good, good writing. I could be wrong. I mentioned Steve Gerber a while ago. I think he did some of the writing for Ultraverse. I personally was not a fan of it. It was another superhero universe. But that does sell to a big market segment. Mm-hmm. And it was successful. It was very successful. At one point, they earned over 10% of the market and passed DC for a few months as the number two comic company in America. Now, this really interested DC. Of course. Because if DC added Malibu to them, guess who would be the new number one publisher and beat Marvel? Mm. So very quickly, Marvel bought them out. Of course. Now, this prevented DC from potentially becoming the new number one publisher. Um, The story at the time, interestingly was that they were buying them for their digital coloring technology. What? Right. Now, you have to understand, coloring is a complicated process. I'm not going to get into it uh-huh. right now. But uh, DC and Marvel were both basically still doing everything by hand. Uh-huh. Malibu had a room of computers running Photoshop, I think. Um, in fact, if memory serves me, they actually worked with Adobe to add features to Photoshop useful for comic book coloring. <laughs> and to amazing. this day, Photoshop is the de facto choice for yeah. comic book coloring work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and by the way, I, I don't know if you know this, but in the old days, do you know what colorists did? No. Okay. What colorists didn't actually add color to comics. That's a myth. No. There were other people who did not get a credit on the page who did that. Uh, no. What they did was they would write in the zones, the Mm -hmm. codes for the people adding the color. Because they would have to sit down. Okay, you know how, like, uh, you've seen CMYK and RGB codes for color digitally, right? Of course. You take, you know, uh, cyan, yellow, magenta, and black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 10% black, 20% cyan, 15% magenta, you know, 28% yellow, And, you know, here's your color that you get as a result of that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The colorist was the person who sat down and knowing they only had four colors to work with, remember the whole four color printing thing, uh, would sit down and write those like, I don't think they actually use CMYK. I think there might have been a different color scheme. But anyway, wrote those percentages down to define the colors of what should be on each part of the page. (laughs) Like a coloring book? Sort of, except they had to sit down and figure out mathematically what the colors should be for other people to apply them. And they had to be able to visualize in their heads what the whole thing would look like. Oh, God. And it was a really high-level skill. Mm-hmm. Not easy. Yeah. I mean, imagine coloring without being able to see the colors. So, like, coloring as a color point? And they had something? tricks for doing this, including things like sheets where they could overlay. I, it... it We could spend a long time just talking about that. I'm not going to do it right now. But anyway, so digital coloring was a big deal. In fact, that was part of the conflict with Joe Quesada's Marvel Knights team that made other people at Marvel jealous because they wanted those computers to do that coloring 
that Joe Casada's team had and then the regular Marvel staffers didn't have. And this and that was, you know, like four or five years later after the events of Marvel buying Malibu. Malibu was already doing that. And they had six days a week, three shifts, literally one eight hour shift from like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then a 4 p.m. to midnight and a midnight to 8 a.m. They had three shifts of people doing digital coloring on Macs with Photoshop at the time mm -hmm. to get the comics done. Isn't that awesome? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And their Ultraverse line was known for its beautiful colors. They were looked much better than everyone else's. Now, and so this was Marvel's excuse for buying them. We want this digital technology and expertise. Mm -hmm. Of course, the fact is, they actually fired and shut down that whole department immediately and got rid of it. Why did they use that as their cover story? Well, because it was plausible and it sounded good. In fact, the guy who was in charge of that kind of work at Marvel was contracting everything out to people in Ireland and apparently was getting kickbacks. So he did not want to change what they were doing. Ah, uh, yes. And that's a whole other story in its own right, of course. Um, now, and there's some other interesting things going on here. Now, remember I mentioned a long time ago, uh, the name Scott Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. So he was the president and owned a bunch of it. And part of his deal of coming into Marvel was that he got a fancy title as a vice president and all that. Mm -hmm. Now, moving forward, uh, he left a few years later. Of course. But he had an exit deal that's under wraps and that becomes relevant. And we're going to talk about this in a second. So, what happened to all these Ultraverse characters and stuff? Well, they were used in one of these soft reboot events. Mm -hmm. Characters from the Ultraverse and some of the other properties were assigned to some of the Marvel worlds. You know, they give them these big, long numbers and all that. Um, and I think they were, they were split between two different assignments in the Marvel Universe. And then that was it. Never seen again. Wow. Yep. Which is actually a shame because a lot of people ask for them. Now, some people have theorized that there were contracts in place at Malibu with percentages that these people would be owed as creators that Marvel doesn't want to deal with. Several people have come forward mm -hmm. who absolutely would know and have said that is absolutely not the truth. That accounting and payouts and the finances have nothing to do with it. And then when asked to clarify what is the case, they said they're not allowed to talk about it. Interesting. So some other people who do not know, but were very close to everything that happened, have, said, have presented their theories. And I think the theories are worth sharing. The theory is that Scott Rosenberg, who apparently a lot of people didn't like, had some terms in his exit agreement and there would be problems uh, with working with these characters because he would have certain rights. Like if they were to be introduced to movies, he might have rights of producing the movies. Mm -hmm. And he has moved into film production. He's done stuff with film production, which I believe is what he's doing now. Mm -hmm. uh, and there may very well be personalities at Marvel who didn't like him and don't want him around in any creative project or context. Mm -hmm. um, is that true? I don't know, but that's the theory of people who know better than me, and so it might be the case. You're saying you don't know the complete inner workings of comic book companies? Only the ones I've taken enough interest to ask enough people. 
And honestly, I, you know, I put this together because uh, you asked about it. And I do think it's an interesting part of comic book history. But I will admit, I am personally more interested in a lot of the black and white and creator-owned stuff that Malibu did, uh, like Saber and other stuff. Um, or was that Eclipse? Anyway, I'm more interested in a lot of that stuff than I was their Ultraverse. Um, I'm not a... I'm a moderate-level superhero fan, but, you know, honestly, Justice League... Black Panther, Batman, Green Lantern, Spider-Man, and a few others uh, pretty much fill up my quota of what I enjoy on superheroes. And then I read other stuff occasionally for fun, but a whole new company coming out with a whole new superhero line uh, didn't excite me a whole lot in the 90s. It just wasn't interesting to me. Uh, But I do think it's an interesting part of history. And uh, as much as I wasn't terribly interested in their Ultraverse line, some of their other stuff I do think is very interesting. I did enjoy Airman. I enjoyed Gravestone. I enjoyed X-Mutants. Dinosaurs for Hire was just wacko, crazy stuff, um, which I recently discovered started out as he was intending to do Elvis. What? And he was afraid, the creator was afraid that he'd get uh, grief from the Elvis estate, so he turned it into Dinosaurs. Of course, because that's so much more logical. Yeah, and, and, and I'll be honest, I wasn't interested in the licensed stuff either, like Alien Nation, although I like the TV show. Um, I found out recently that they that it was Adventure Comics uh, as a part of Malibu that did the Paranoia comics, which I enjoyed, uh, which were a tie-in to the Paranoia role-playing game, one of the few cases outside D&D, uh, and then later Pathfinder, where a role-playing game got its own dedicated comics. Yeah. But, for example, um, you know, Aircell did the Men in Black comics, which became the movie. I wasn't terribly interested in that. Um, There was a bit of a unified universe before Ultraverse with their Shattered Earth stuff. Even though I enjoyed uh, X-Mutants, I never really became interested in most of the titles from Shattered Earth. And Eternity Comics that did stuff like Ninja High School by Ben Dunn who uh, was also associated with Antarctic Press, which did a lot of the early English, so-called English manga, not translations of Japanese manga, but original English titles in a manga style. Mm. Um, I wasn't really interested in either. Uh, In fact, I think the only stuff from Eternity Comics that really interested me uh, were Captain Harlock and Robotech. Uh, Because I have a little bit of a uh, weeboo heart in me. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. I said little. Anyway, uh, you can find all kinds of more tie-ins they did, creator-owned stuff they did, on and on and on. Uh, But that is the brief history of Malibu. What do you think? Interesting. Uh, I'm glad to know the basic stuff about it, because it always comes up whenever we talk about other comic book companies, it feels like. Yeah, you know, in my head, uh, uh, it's about a company of hustling. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they didn't have a vision to create a company that did a thing with this grand artistic vision. But here were these guys who wanted to make a comic. You know, one one of them had experience in comic books through Fantagraphics and all that stuff. And they decided to make a new company and they hustled at it and they did different stuff. 
and it worked and they sold it out and they moved on and have done more stuff in the comic book industry and they were the right people at the right place and they made a piece of history and hopefully made a little bit of cash doing it and i think in a way made the industry a better place um and then they were gone i mean it's very fitting yeah I mean, they kind of took the Zen route. They went out like surfers, and they took the big waves, and then they packed it in and headed home. Um, and I don't think there's any shame in that. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, that's it. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, though. Okay. So, you know, next week uh, for the Tuesday episode, we're going to do volumes two and three of A Nation Under Our Feet. Mm-hmm. What do you want for the other episode? We, we keep doing American comic book companies. What about a manga company? Ooh, research could be hard there. True. I have to think. Okay, so it might be a surprise. I will mention for people listening, um, I finished, finally got around to finish reading High Rise Invasion this last week. Mm, I've seen the anime for that. Uh, I've not seen the anime, but the manga was very good. Mm. There's a spinoff series that was published that doesn't sound as interesting. High Rise, High Rise Invasion Arrival mm. or Arrive. Um, but the story is complete in 21 Tonkoban of High Rise Invasion. It was good. Mm. And wasn't there something else I ran through last week that I mentioned to you? Nothing I can think of. I'm pretty sure there was. Anyway, uh, something manga related, maybe. Oh, Comey uh, Can't Communicate. Oh, yeah. Comey Can't Communicate. Um, For those who haven't read it, uh, brief description of both. Uh, Comey Can't Communicate is a comedy series, uh, very lighthearted, but centers around this girl who everyone treats... In fact, the class elects her as class goddess. There's supposed to be an election for, like, class president, and they start to nominate her for that, and uh, she doesn't want it. And they're like, oh, of course, that's not prestigious enough for you. So they declare her God. Um, and everybody thinks she's completely unapproachable. I mean, she's beautiful and just stern. And you just look at her and it's like, oh, my God, I'm not. A lo-. You know, she's too perfect for me to be in the presence of. Um, but the fact is, that's all because it's not actually because she looks down on everybody. It's because she's so nervous and that's her defense mechanism. And she's somewhere, I think, on the autistic spectrum, but she has severe communication anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the story is about her and then this growing circle of people, many of whom who have a communication disorder of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I I like that it highlights people with anxieties Mm -hmm. and communication problems. I have more than a little empathy for that. (laughs) And I like that it's lighthearted and fun, which given that I had just spent the two previous weeks reading absolutely horrifying stories of the Holocaust, many of which were real, not that the fictional ones, you know, were any better. Well, I mean, they weren't lighthearted either, but when you know this actually happened, it hurts just a A bit bit more. more. Um, I mean, you don't even get any tiny I, I tend to empathize with characters a lot anyway, mm-hmm. so it still hits me anyway. Um, but knowing it's real is just, you know, like an extra twist of the knife in the yeah, gut. Yeah, you can't tell your brain, at least this didn't actually happen. Right. So Comey Can't Communicate was a nice little palate cleanser uh, from that. Uh, and then after that, High Rise Invasion, um, which is very violent and very brutal, uh, was kind of fun in its own right. 
So we'll do something manga related for Thursday. Um, Wait, maybe to make research easier, what about a European company? Because some of their stuff gets translated into Any English. particular one? No, I can't, I can't think of it. How about instead of the history of a company, the history of a creator? Ooh. How about Rumiko Takahashi? Yes! All right. So Thursday, we're going to talk about Takahashi-sama, um, because she deserves that respect, uh -huh. I think. And uh, that'll be next week. Yeah. All right? All right. Until then, keep reading comics. Bye.